You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Racism, racism, and more racism. Eugenics, Nazism, white supremacy, slavery, Orientalism, also suicide. And did I mention racism? Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Solomon Cain by Robert E. Howard. 
Uh, the second time now, uh, we're talking about Robert E. Howard. We did a show about him, uh, actually our second ever show and our first real show uh, was about Cull, another creation of Robert E. Howard. Uh, best known, of course, for created, creating uh, Conan. But um, the, uh, you know, because that's an obvious one, we've kind of been trying to come at him from uh, different perspectives. Uh, these were written in the... Uh, uh, late 20s and early 30s, um, and they are, uh, you know, he was a very prolific pulp writer, of course. He wrote a bunch of different stories. Uh, Solomon Keynes is quite a bit different from some of the other stuff he wrote. He's associated with this sort of antediluvian, barbarian sword and sorcery fantasy. Uh, very swashbuckling, very, very tightly written, not a lot of, um, well, there's purple prose, but there's not a lot of, uh, he cuts right into the action. Um, these stories are about uh, a histor a guy who exists in a historical period, uh, the Puritan period, um, or well, that's not really a period, but he's a Puritan uh, from the. Uh, these seem to be happening at the very beginning of the 17th century, which is to say the 16 1600s, um, and he is a Puritan as we would understand it, uh, and he goes on. Uh, Adventures all around the world. Uh, he's they're they're somewhat piratical, although he's not a he's not a pirate, obviously, and he he actually doesn't spend that much time at sea in the stories. Um, he's more of an explorer and a wanderer. Um, and you hadn't read any of these stories before this, right, Phil? Uh, no, I had read uh, Red Shadows uh, before we started this podcast. Um, oh, okay. Um, and I didn't continue because it was really racist. Yes, and. Uh, it doesn't let up. Yeah, it's it's uh, the racism. Unfortunately, is a very big part of these stories. Um, many of them are set in Africa, and they have the you know nineteen twenties pulp understanding of Africa. But actually, you know, as uh, I think you want to talk about later, it's there's, there's a little above and beyond because there's there's the the ra there's the casual racism of encountering other cultures in a period before World War Two, or really even afterwards. Uh, in American fiction, but then there's also, um, you know, above and beyond, quote, scientific racism, uh, which we've slightly touched on in some other shows, uh, and then there's just, you know, plain old, you know, dislike for people of color racism. Um, yeah, and I so think the, the all three says... of these are kind of in here in 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 this in this story. Yeah. Um, as you said, the stories are set uh, sometime in the uh, um, early uh, 1600s, and um, racism w did exist at the time. It was being uh, sort of formed because uh, slavery was starting to be, or chattel slavery was starting to become a major thing, and you know you have to in sort of in invent another in order to justify um, enslaving a group of people because that's something that people naturally uh, don't like, or, you know, right. the, the horrors of slavery is, is something that people had to be conditioned into accepting. Right. And part of that was inventing whiteness and blackness. Um, so that was being formed at the time. But the specific type of racism that appears in this in these stories is mostly a kind that's the scientific racism, as you said, that sort of emerged in the 19th century and was still popular in the 20th century, mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, you know, uh, 
the uh, most obvious uh, symbol of it is the phrenology, the the measuring skulls. You know, the various bumps mm-hmm. represent um, uh, various uh, uh, personality traits, and of course, the white people have the good person personality right. traits, and um, everybody else has negative personality traits right. in and, various proportions. And and just sort um, of tying it in with genetic, like as if there's there's yeah. some genetic character to a race. Yeah. Very much uh, tied into a misunderstanding of Darwin. Right. Uh, yeah. The, the idea that uh, there's there's better species out there. Right. Um, when that's not what evolution is about. You know, no species is more evolved than any other species mm-hmm. if they exist at the same time. Right. Now, um, so we'll. It's I just think branching off into different directions. Like an amoeba right. isn't less evolved than a human being. Yeah. I, I think um, we can get into this. We'll, we'll come back to this a bit. We just, but yeah, we do have to talk about that right up front because there's there's a very, very heavy racism. This was a common thing in the pulse, but it's it's particularly prevalent in Howard's yeah, it, work and and in a different way. It would be in like say Lovecraft's work, but it's still very very strong and prevalent. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like Lovecraft is more openly hateful. Uh, I mean, this this is hateful in a lot of places, but mm-hmm. uh, Lovecraft would not have a positive black character, for example. Right. Yeah. And this does have, uh, no, uh, sorry, Nalonga. I'm having troubles. Nalonga, sorry, my my brain was adding uh, mixing up a different name there. Uh-huh. Nalonga, uh, who is very much a stereotype, but he's also Solomon Kane's friend. Yeah, there's a few. Um, and there's, he helps him out. He, 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 you know, he comes to the defense. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, I just, I did want to just sort of preface that uh, and point out that, yeah, that, like there's very heavy racism to a like, kind of an eye-popping degree for a modern reader in these, in these stories. Um, not all of them are set uh, in Africa. Not all of them are, you know, th- some of them are okay, but the, the most well-known ones and the ones that often sort of characterize it are uh, set in Africa and feature some degree of, at the very least, casual racism. Um, others are set in different places. Uh, there's a few set in Europe and in in uh, the Middle East and so on, and they're not as bad, but but they're definitely, uh, it's definitely uh, uh, a strong element of these stories, which we'd have to caution if anyone was going to read these. Uh, you know, there's, there's probably a reason that, um, even though Solomon Cain is a fairly well-remembered character, uh, I think there's, and I'd say there's a reason he's been semi-forgotten, but they did make a movie about him just about 10 years ago, but it was pretty lousy. Uh, we'll talk about that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I did want to just start by uh, sort of framing uh, the, the history here just very briefly, um, and I'm by no means an expert, um, but there's a, um, this is something that I didn't really, le- I'm surprised that we didn't really get into in school. Uh, you know, I'm we're, we're both Canadian, uh, and you'd think this would sort of tie into our history, and it ties into American history as well, but uh, mostly what Americans learn is that there were these pilgrims who came across the sea and landed on Plymouth Rock at a certain time. Uh, in fact, but there's a whole uh, thing that was going on in England from which that derives. Um, at, um, at in uh, Of course, famously, Henry VIII um, uh, began the Church of England, uh, which broke off from the Catholic Church, and this was around the same time that uh, Protestantism was was taking shape. Um, and a lot of people, and you know, 
well, uh, my my family is Anglican, and and uh, I I do know some Anglicans who get a bit grumpy when you say he did it just so he could divorce his wife, Henry VIII, um, because it is it is a lot more complicated than that. But but um, for all intents and purposes, it is uh, Catholicism with the serial numbers filed off and a few changes. Um, and a lot of British people apparently didn't at the time sort of felt like um, you know we the, the Church of England didn't go far enough. It should be much more reformed in the nature of Lutheranism or Calvinism or some of the other uh, Protestant uh, denominations, which were meant to be a lot more um, 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 serious and and you know they, there were a lot there was much that was frowned on, particularly things like plenary indulgences, which was essentially rich people buying the church's favor, um, and the and you know it was it was seen as a bit more of a hierarchy, and they wanted it to be a bit more populist, and there were a lot of other uh, details, but but the long and short of it is you know we all know the the figure of the Puritan who's very grim and serious. Uh, and you know, and, and fanatical, as it were, uh, in their religion, uh, they see they tend to see the the Catholic Church as decadent, um, and that was what they were responding to. So this this strain of Puritans popped up in England, and and some of the their reforms actually did work their way into the Church of England. Uh, it eventually led to a civil war in uh, the mid seventeenth uh, century. Uh, which ended with Cro Oliver Cromwell briefly ruling England, uh, executing the king. Then uh, Charles III, I believe, came back and executed Cromwell, and things more or less went back to how they were. Uh, the gunpowder plot happened around this time period as well. Um, but anyway, the long and the short of it is there was this rise of a group who would be called the Puritans, and who actually were not a religious uh, sect in and of themselves. They were just a group uh, of very stern you know, they were trying to shape the form of Protestantism. Some of them were Calvinists, Calvinists some of them were Lutherans. I think some of them were even Anglicans. Uh, again, not an expert on this. But, uh, you know, that became the, the image of the famous Thanksgiving pilgrims, essentially. And and eventually, of course, the group of them went to New England and, and, and to escape uh, the, the remnants of the Civil War. But uh, during that time, they, they, they actually, oddly enough, believed strongly in um, sort of things like... Um, they were very early Enlightenment philosophy. They did believe in in exploration, science to a certain degree, um, and uh, you know there were they had various attitudes that were some of them were really good, some of them were bad. They were you know in in America they became the big uh, part of the the anti slavery movement. Generally speaking, they frowned on slavery uh, with with some exceptions, I think, but that they were. Uh, they were somewhat uh, known for for that attitude, but of course they were also the ones who burned witches. Um, so you've got this sort of um, they, they were very uh, strict about their principles and their ideology, uh, which could be both a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, so they're fascinating characters, and you can see why uh, Howard kind of seized on that uh, the idea of a wandering Puritan at that time when that when that uh, mindset was rising. And this is also around about the golden age of piracy, so there's a lot of pirate uh, linkage to the stories. Yeah. Um, I Years ago, I read uh, Sarah Vowell's uh, book, The Wordy Shipmates on the uh, Massachusetts Colony in the U.S., uh, Roger Winthrop and those guys. Um, and I, 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 it's been a while, I, I, um, but uh, I remember uh, there were fights over the, uh, the English flag uh, which was the uh, red cross on a white white field, uh, because that was you know idolatry. Right. It's the cross, and you're worshiping the cross instead of God. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, most of them weren't. Most of the, even the Puritans weren't even that that um, um, 
that intense. Sorry, who who was it? Who was who was it that was doing this again? Uh, one of the pure. Uh, there were fight in fights within the group. Like most of them were okay with the English flag and didn't right. want to upset Mother England. But uh, uh, there were some fighting against um, even you know. Right. The the idolatry of the thing. Right. Right. Which you know, and you can. There's a logic to that if you break it down. I mean, there's it's it's part of the same thread that if you go back, you know, that led to a certain branches and and even you know islam you know frowning on images for basically the same reasons um but it, yeah so it was very it was very uh very very serious religious conviction very uh they didn't they didn't agree with um like they they took solemnity very seriously you weren't supposed to be frivolous and you know and you know you weren't supposed to have fun basically it was it was seen as somewhat suspect if you were laughing and having fun all the time because life was supposed mm-hmm. to be serious and you're supposed to work hard and you could have your reward in the next life not not in this life essentially yeah also uh as you said calvinism was a big streak uh, among them um and uh, that's based on uh rather unfortunate I- ideas that um because god can see into the future uh basically it's all about uh uh, whether you're saved or not has already been decided at the beginning of time, so you have no actual choice in the matter. It just there's elect and there's non-elect, and uh, if you're not elect, then you won't act like a living saint. Um, so like you can you can see if somebody's elect or not basically, and if you uh, sort of acted up at any point uh, or acted in a in a way contrary to that at any point. Um, it was proof that you were damned. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's various uh, stories of, it was really intense. Yeah. Like, it, it's a really like hard right. uh, idea to put on, especially children, you know? Just, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's meant to be like a, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, to be fair, the Puritans tended to hold themselves to th- their own standards as well. Um, and, and again, there, there were elements of the Puritanism that were, arguably positive for history they actually that um because they were tied in with cromwell um when they took it to america they're often linked to the idea that you know of of turning america into a democracy because uh england was a democracy briefly under cromwell um and that they they were you know they they didn't believe in kings as much as i'm not going to say they absolutely did never believed in kings but they you know they were a bit more populist and they 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 instilled that idea of anti-monarchism in uh, in in the U.S. that eventually led to uh, the revolution. Um, well, I mean that was one that was one tributary. I mean, there's also things like the the Iroquois Confederacy. There a lot a lot of different <laughs> a lot of different factors went into it, but you know, definitely they were on the right side of that particular uh, historical argument. Um, and and it's inter- so we have this character, and so Solomon Cain's a very interesting character in that regard because he's a uh, Puritan, and he is, he is very, you know, in that sense, he's a solemn, brutal, not brutal, but, you know, he, he, he sees himself as the, uh, the, 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 the hand of God, the sword of righteousness. Uh, Phil, you, that, that passage that, uh, you, you collect, if you want to, if you want to, uh, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, nay, I alone am a weak creature having no strength or might in me. Yet in times past hath God made me a great vessel for wrath and a sword of deliverance, and I trust shall do again. Right, because he sees he sees 
I'm not going to link this. I'm not going to say this is his main motivation, but he definitely sees himself as a guy whose job is to set things right when he's when he encounters you know evil on Earth. Uh, but at the same time, um, there's that streak of Robert E. Howard's mind mindset, which shows up in all of his stories, including the Conan stories, where um, he doesn't even for a Puritan, he doesn't take joy in you know righteousness and the word of God. He he actually kind of doubts uh, God and the and the rightness of everything. Uh, in in one of the very first stories, he's he talks about you know I I think I'm doing righteousness, but who can say? Who can say? Who knows what what God has planned? And who knows if he he, he stops short of saying who knows if there's really a loving God and if God has a plan for us all, who knows if that's actually true or not. Um, there's another passage that I like here. I'm going to read it here. Um, Though he always acted on impulse, he firmly believed that his actions were governed by cold and logical reasoning. He was a man born out of his time, a strange blending of Puritan and Cavalier. Cavaliers were the other side of the British Civil War. Uh, with a touch of the ancient philosopher and more than a touch of the pagan, although the last assertion would have shocked him unspeakably. An atavist of the days of blind chivalry he was, a knight errant in the somber clothes of the fanatic. A hunger in his soul drove him on and on, an urge to right all wrongs, protect all weaker things, avenge all crimes against right and justice. Wayward and restless as the wind, he was consistent only in one respect. He was true to these, his ideals of justice and right. Such was Solomon Cain. Um, and he mentions this a few other times throughout the story, that he's got a, quote, touch of the pagan, and that he's he's this brute. And what I find entertaining about that is he's a sec he's effectively, in, in many ways, he's just Conan transplanted to a different historical period, a different context. And by, you, you, saw, you caught that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's definitely, like, this is a man who doesn't fit into the time he exists in. As I say, the Puritans had a surprisingly surprising lean towards the Enlightenment philosophies. They did actually encourage the arts and sciences. Um, so it's not like they were often very well educated. So it's not completely out of whack. Of course, it's Howard sort of re retroactively transcribing his own, you know, modern day ideals onto him in that sense as well. But it's not quite as much of a leap as it could be. I'm stretching okay. a little, <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, I, I mean, it's also a story about him fighting a, a race of bat people who are also the harpies from Greek myth. So <laughs> you know, cut it some slack yeah. in there. Well, but but yeah, just going back to that though, um, it is interesting that if you kind of squint a bit, you can definitely say that. Uh, I think we mentioned this in one of the other the other shows that Howard's heroes, a lot of them are kind of the same character, just transplanted to different points in time. They do have different personality elements, but they tend to be uh, brooding, moody, you know, steely-eyed, dark-haired, brawny, um, people of, as he said of Conan, gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth. Um, you know, Conan's maybe a bit more fun to be around than Solomon Cain would be, because, you know, he lives at a time when that's literally how you're supposed to act. Uh, but, um, there's definitely this idea that he's got that sort of wild fury deep inside of him that drives him that is that you recognize as very Conan-like um, or Cull-like or Bran McMoran. I haven't read uh, El Borak, Steve Costigan, or his Western heroes, uh, but I get the general impression that, yeah, they have a lot in common as well. And I think this is the idea, we've, we've talked about Michael Moorcock, I think this is actually the idea that inspired Michael Moorcock's uh, Eternal Champion, 
uh, where all of his heroes were actually re essentially reincarnations of the same uh, person who kept, you know, recurring throughout time. I think he, he explicitly got that from uh, this element in Howard's work. Anyway, uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with What Mad Universe after these words from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm inviting you to listen to Our Three Cents, a weekly podcast where myself and two of my very best gaming chums are counting down our top 100 favourite video games of all time. For all the episodes and information, check out our website, www.our3cents.co.uk. In this quarter, on the Greenlit Podcast Network, Chris Sims and Matt Wilson And in this quarter, VHS oddities, confusing animation, and modern not-so-classics Plus snacks, movie fighters We watch movies and beat them up Makes sense uh, There's also uh, direct connections with, uh, um, say, call uh, in Moon of Skulls, the... Uh, the civilization is a remnant of uh, Atlantean. Uh, the secret civilization that he discovers uh, in Africa is a rem rem remnant of Atlantis. And it, it mentions, uh, what was it, Volca, the god that Call worships? Oh, is it? Yeah, okay, yeah, Volca, yeah. Yes, yeah, his, his conception yeah. of Atlantis is fairly consistent from from uh, different story, yeah. story, yeah. Though here, here it says the Atlanteans were uh, brown-skinned. Uh, did it ever say that uh, Call was necessarily white? Or? He's he's weird about that. Um, he's talked. He talks about. I don't think he does explicitly say that. I think it's sort of implied. Uh, he he kind of has implied that all these different characters are uh, Celtic. Like even before the Celts mm -hmm. actually existed, like Conan, like Conan is literally a Celtic name, right? Um, I, he, yeah. I, I think that's always been the general implication that that they are, you know, Irish, Celtic, or at least you know, uh, ancient, ancient England, pre-Roman Britain. Like Bran MacMorn, again, he's he's literally a Celt. Um, so I think you're supposed to trace a sort of genealogy through all of them. But at the same time, he does talk about the Picts in some of the Cull stories, and actually in the Conan stories, as being uh, brown-skinned, and even he actually has them literally standing in for Native Americans in one of the Conan stories, uh, which um, is, uh, like, the Picts and the Celts were very closely related, as I understand it. So... Um, it's a little, he's a little hazy on that particular point. Now, uh, and and actually the fact that, um, since this ties back into the racism thing, uh, that, uh, the, the story, that particular story, The Moon of Skulls, that's the really, really racist story. Um, and and as you say, yeah. so it's, he discovers this ancient city ruled by, uh, you know, with, a, with an African queen ruling it. And then he discovers this other, uh, guy who's been locked up in the uh, in the dungeons, and he's part of the ca the priestly caste who used to have enslaved the Africans, and they were from Atlantis, and now they they were overthrown, and they were the ones who built the city in the first place. And man, there's so much whiplash, and even putting aside just how blatantly racist it is, there's so much whiplash in these stories between uh, trying to write, like trying to just demean black people, and at the same time. Yeah, there, there's all this stuff about like black people couldn't have built a civilization right. this big. But then at the uh, same time, he's trying to paint the Atlanteans who enslaved them, who 
who are also, and I think this is why they're depicted as not white. And he's trying to make like all the all the horrors of slavery and all the bad because he because the Atlanteans are bad. They had a you know they sacrifice people and they enslave people and they're this brutal empire. Um, you know all the stuff white people do to black people, but it was this other group. It was this Atlantean group, um, and um, and and you kind of and there, you can you can almost see like it, it that story almost reads like Howard is like he starts writing the story in a logical way, which wouldn't necessarily be you know contemptuous of of, of people of color, and then you get to a point where it's like oh but my audience is expecting this or you know like and I'm not just this is not to say that Robert e. Howard was not you know racist himself. Uh, apparently he did have uh, black servants in his household, and he credited them with telling stories that inspired some of his life, some of his um his desire to write and so on, and may have been some tie to like how Nalonga talks for instance um but it, it's you know it 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 feels like a you can feel the hand of the time and place he was born really actively inserting itself into the story to a degree that really just it is feels forced you know it's not just like casual unthinking racism it's like oh yeah yeah i got i got to keep insisting that you know, yeah, oh, black people can never be this sophisticated in real life. It's a fantasy thing about, like, it, and yet he'd talk about how horrible it was that they were enslaved. Like, it's it's really confused, I think. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance in it, as it were. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a, a paragraph uh, in a later story that I'm going to read here. Um, Cain stood an unconscious statue of triumph. The ancient empires fell off. Uh, the ancient empires fall, the dark-skinned peoples fade, and even the demons of antiquity gasp their last. But all, but over all stands the Aryan barbarian, white-skinned, cold-eyed, dominant, the supreme fighting man of the earth. Whether he be clad in wolf hide and horned helmet, or boots and doublet, whether he bear uh, in his hand a battle axe or rapier, whether he be called Dorian Sax, uh, yeah, whether he be called Dorian Saxon or Englishman, whether his name be Jason. Uh, Hengist or Solomon Kane. Yeah. So yeah, it's, that's pretty like explicit white supremacy yeah. there. It, it's There's so not not a lot of ways to. Oh, oh, a hundred percent. And it's the same kind of stuff that you know Hitler took picked up and ran with. Like, and as we talked about in the Cole show, it's the idea of like it's the Blavatskian and the, the like the the crackpot pseudo scientific uh, racial and historical ideas of the late nineteenth century, where they believed there was this great Aryan race that, it, I mean, there, there was a, uh, some kind of racial phenotype that came down from, uh, the, the, the central plains called, that we call the Aryans. Uh, they weren't really quote white and they, they had a lot, there, it was a lot more complicated, but you know, they're like that. We talk about the Indo-Aryan, uh, languages, for instance, uh, that there is a scientific, principle for that. Uh, but of course, a lot of people have picked up on that over the years, including Adolf Hitler, and they turned it into a, a thing about, you know, the bastard race and all that kind of kind of nonsense. Uh, literally no yeah, basis I, I, for what Hitler was doing. He just kind of said, yeah, these are, these are white people, the Aryans, you know, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, I think uh, the back and forth confused nature of... Uh, his understanding of or his thoughts on race is um, pretty apparent. There is a story where he fights against slavers, right. and he's pretty the the stories uh, or the 
the way it's structured, it's very firmly against slavery. Right. So, um, I mean, that's like bare minimum. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, something. it's and don't forget, you know, Robert E. Howard's a guy from the South. Uh, he was Texas specifically, um, and you know, mm-hmm. and again, like he 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 had encountered black people. Like it's it's possible Lovecraft never met a black person in his life, but Robert E. Howard definitely had uh, encountered black people. Um, and it's again, you see that kind of cognitive dissonance in the writing uh you talked about and it, also in uh, the moon the skull uh, skull moon um the uh moon of skulls, moon of skulls. thank you <laughs> um the the um he, the guy the atlantean talks about the white savages and the black savages took over our, our race and so forth and it's the, and that that's at the root of actually the conan stories of like he's singing a pian to the to the to the idea of the um the barbarian and the savage, and he's glorifying that. He likes this idea of, you know, the non-civilized, non-imperialist, non-colonial culture, but he still has to frame it with white supremacy. And for some reason, when it's a person of color, um, especially a black person, suddenly all his ideals about savagery and 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 you know the the noble savage go out the window more to a degree. I, I, I suppose there are some more positive depictions out there, but you know it's it's really really weird from that angle. Like he, he's he 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 can somehow can contain these two radically different ideas in his head while he's writing, where it's like he's talking about how great the yeah. savage is, but then oh those people over there are savages. Like it does <laughs> that completely conflicts with with each other. Well, it's like it's like right wingers who talk about gun rights and then, uh, you know, say the Black Panthers were bad because they carried right. guns around. Yeah, or the know? the Nazis were socialists, um, but also the Nazis were kind of good if you're a Nazi. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there, there's also bits where like uh, he'll uh, Solomon Kane, the character, will sort of um, mentally separate out different types of Africans right. based on you know similarities to white people so it says you know their their high forehead and and thin lips bespoke the you know the uh um that they were of a superior stock you know um which again very uh very 19th century kind of racism rather than the racism that would have existed yeah and he actually he goes beyond Um, the uh like it's not just people of color like he does it with all the european characters too like oh they had it you know he had a uh, you know, a sharp face which bespoke a sinister nature kind of thing. Like, he he constantly... Yeah, and I mean, or, to be fair, that's the kind of thing you do in pulp stories, but it just shows you how ingrained that kind of idea Yeah, that, that was that was really common. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs did that all the time, you know, his thin, cruel lips yeah. or whatnot. You know everything you need to know about a character the instant you look at them and the, the author describes them. Including Solomon Cain himself. Like, you're, you, you understand that he's a very aesthetic, ascetic, uh, severe guy, and but he's also serious and he has a dark, you know, a strong a, a iron will and all that kind of stuff. It's all on his face, you know, and the shape of his face. Yeah. Uh, another thing about the, um, the, the whole displacement idea, which is as we, the, uh, what's the word um, when you project? <laughs> yeah. But, but displacement is really the, the thing um, that you're, you're looking at these issues that exist and you're sort of dimly aware of them. So you're, putting them off into someone else. Um, <clears throat> that's another Oh, yeah. Function. Um, the, um, the anti-slavery story I mentioned, the villains are Arab slave yes. traders, 
which was a thing, but right. still, like, white people were... Yeah, well, this is, yeah, yeah that's 100% right. Like, one of the reasons possibly for the rise of Orientalism in late 19th and early 20th century uh, fiction was that that was one way to sort of talk about slavery and under, and acknowledge that it was bad, but also put it off onto this other race that wasn't the white people. And, you know, it was, oh, I'm going to free the, 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 oh, those cruel slavers who are doing slavery things. It's like, you guys were doing slavery until like a few decades ago. Um, it's, but you know, this, this lets us other the, the, the race. And at the same time, it lets you there, you can, you can argue there's a vicarious nature to it where it's like, you know, you can, you can kind of, you can you can kind of luxuriate in the idea of owning slave beautiful slave girls feeding you grapes and stuff like that and you know you you operate with a wink and a nod saying oh they're they're bad those uh, those Middle Easterners who do this but you know then you can it's in the story for you to enjoy right like there's a very it's it's this very confused yeah. attitude well it's it's the whole idea that the harem in the uh, um, Western popular co uh, consciousness mm -hmm. uh, which was you know what uh, Westerners weren't allowed in, uh, so they sort of imagined that it was this big sexy orgy right. time, um, and that's not what was going on. And but it was it was a major focus in art in uh, in the Western world. Just the the Arabic harem was so common in the 19th century right. in art, um, and none of it was based on any actual <laughs> experiences. It was all just right. fantasy. Yeah, so much of it, so much of uh you know, culture and it goes, and then you, and then it gets just straying a bit here, but it, it gets transposed into like sci-fi with aliens who are stand-ins for different races. And, you know, as, as late as, you know, Star Trek, you've got Orion slave girls and it's that attitude again. It's like, it's bad, but Hey, check it out. They're slave girls. Like, you know, it's, yeah. It, yeah. I, I was thinking of that when you were saying, you know, the, uh, the pilot, the original pilot mm -hmm. with the, Orion slave girl dancing before Pike mm -hmm. and like Pike's into right. it, you know. It's, it's we can we can condemn it, but very, we can also uh, appreciate it in the story, right? Like we get we get to have it both ways yeah. essentially, um, and that's yeah, that's that's always been a big fa faction of uh, function of Orientalism, unfortunately. Um, anyway, so yeah, like it, we're talking about this a lot, but it's it's it, like it's it's a an element in a lot of pulp and, and genre stories uh, at a certain period of time, and and this was a very prominent example of it, essentially. Um, uh, yeah, so in the notes, uh, you wanted to compare Moan of Skulls, uh, contrast it with uh, Of One right. Blood, which I think is... Well, yeah, I mean, more or less as we talked about it, like Of One... It's interesting that Of One Blood uses the same kind of... If you recall, that's in our show uh, Out of Africa, and it was a, a book written by a black woman, uh, and it did have the idea of a lost kingdom of... Uh, you know, Africans uh, who had a uh, uh, this extremely sophisticated culture that went back, you know, to the dawn of time and had all these. Uh, in this, in that case, it was sort of magical arts that uh, that had kept them alive for for millennia. And um, and and you, so you you can see that that exists in culture uh, going back to the 19th century, and that's very much you know a sympathetic African American view of that. As opposed to this, which is very much the white panic view, version of it. Uh, one thing that he actually yeah, the, it, this is like if uh, if Wakanda was like a terrifying, you know, presented as terrifying. Right. Well, yeah, it's this is almost like if Wakanda was real and somebody, some white guy, got back to 
Europe with stories about it, like the kind of stories he would tell about it, right? Because he'd make it as as sinister yeah. as possible. And it is it's I, another part of this cognitive uh, cognitive dissonance thing. Uh, as I as I mentioned, like uh, Nakari, who's the uh, the queen of of this uh, city, uh, Nagari. Um, she actually offers Solomon Kane the chance to rule by his side because, of course, she's immediately in love with him, as always happens to the heroes in these pulp stories. Um, oh, and she, she's the first white man she's yeah, seen right. It's like it's that. you know she's she's intrigued by you know the fact that he's a white, which I mean, fair enough, that would be an, a unique and exotic thing, I guess. But um, but yeah, she actually literally says, "Well, you can join with me, and we can." rebuild our empire and maybe we can go out and conquer the world which clashes with this whole thing that he keeps saying about well africans could never get to the the level of sophistication to do this it's like well wait a minute so you're saying they could conquer the world if they wanted to like if if i mean yeah they need a white man well with atlantean knowledge right well so they're cheating yeah but there's but she kind of implies that they could do it if they just had solomon cain as their king uh, which, like, yeah, they have the Atlantean knowledge, but the Atlantean also says that their knowledge is dried up. Like, they don't understand what they're doing or what it means anymore. And and yeah. again, he keeps kind of saying, like, well, the Africans could never actually, like, they, they just don't have the brains to ever do this kind of thing. Like, it's like, well, but if they could conquer the world, then they could, they obviously do have the means to do it. Like they obviously do have the intelligence to do it on their own. So he's kind of like all over the place in that regard. Um, and it's, in but it is interesting to see that, that it's, it reminds me of the, the Ayn Rand thing where, uh, you know, the hero, the, the villains of her stories always have to be inept because the heroes are the competent ones and competence is the great goal, but then they have to be a threat. They have to be competent uh, competent enough to to threaten the vil the heroes of the story. This is the same thing. It's like, well, we have to keep insisting on the inferiority of this other race, but then we, we also have to make them a threat, which is that they could conquer the world. So, you know, which is it, <laughs> right? Are they are they competent or are they incompetent? And yeah, it's it's the yeah. um, uh, not that um, either uh, Howard or Ayn Rand are actually uh, fascists, but uh, it is the uh, um, Umberto echoes um, uh, traits of fascism that it presents the uh, um, enemy as simultaneously too weak and too strong by shifting the rhetorical right. uh, um, by uh, shifting around you know depending the on the, uh, what you're saying at the time the enemy is either pathetic and just laughably weak or they're completely in charge of the world yeah yeah, exactly. And and it, it's just, we keep harping on it because this is really prominent in the story. Like, this this really pops up and, and like, that element just, you can feel, you know, sweat trickling down Howard's brow while he's writing it. And I'll give Howard a maybe a little, an inch of leeway because he did have editors who would insist on certain things and how i know that howard as as i think i've mentioned before he tried to like he he seems to have suffered from uh depression um and i mean to, he actually he did uh, commit suicide ultimately and um he uh it may have been he he seems to have written some of those traits into some of his heroes and that which then got like cut out by the editors because they didn't want the heroes to look weak so it's not howard's own 
attitude of, oh yeah, my heroes have to be super strong and manly at all times. It, it was actually the editors doing that, not not Howard. So he might have been a little more honest, left to his own devices, than he had to be writing for the pulp editors who wanted, you know, the trashiest stuff and the most simplistic stuff they could get. Um, but, you know, any, like, again... Even with what we get, I mean, Howard is... De- his views on race are definitely more at least nuanced than Lovecraft's, which, I mean, that's the lowest possible yeah, this... bar, pretty much, but um, it's something. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, yeah, we're not, we're, we're damning with faint praise here. It's not like he was particularly enlightened fellow. Um, so we're not, you know, he it, clearly this element is there in the stories. Um, anyway, let's uh, just, so... Th- uh, we're we're going to get a lot of uh, comments calling us S- SJWs or whatnot. <laughs> well, I think if, at this point, oh, people well. are, we've, we've, uh, that ship yeah. has sailed. <laughs> if you're still listening at this point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's just such a prominent part of the story. But it is, it is, um, um, it, it, it's a bit yeah, of a shame. Keeps, I mean, I, you, you try to go into these, you know, uh, expecting a fun time, but you keep getting right. whacked on the head with scientific racism. Yeah, it's, it, it is so unavoidable. And it's really such a shame because Howard really was a really strong writer. He had a very good command of prose. Uh, he was, you know, he had a sort of a, a, for lack of a better term, a grasp of history that made it, even though he's not 100% accurate and everything, but you can see how he kind of went, yeah, this is a period in history that's fascinating. Let me bring it to life, even in the most simplistic terms. That makes you kind of, kind of dream that it's alive and the stories that don't involve going to africa of which there are several um you know they involve uh, again they tend to involve piracy uh a number of stories have uh kane including uh red shadows as you mentioned the first that was literally called solomon kane it was the first solomon kane story uh they had him uh it had him pursuing uh, a pirate who'd uh who'd done some he actually he killed a woman and so Cain, who n- did not know the woman, had no connection to her, but suddenly decided, yeah, I'm going to chase this guy halfway around the world to get vengeance because that's what's right. So you can see how. Yeah, that's really that. That's what really makes the character interesting. I think that he's he's so fanatical about what he believes is right or wrong. Like uh, uh, the movie really falls down on this aspect. Like all yeah. the um, his obsessions are always personal in the movie. Yeah. Um, but in in the in the stories. You know, he doesn't uh, like a lot of them are based on him trying to rescue a girl or whatever. Right. But he doesn't know them. He's not; they're not his love interest or a daughter figure. Well, there's another. They're just in in uh, the 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 moon of skulls. He is looking for a girl, and he does know her. Uh, she was like the the childhood uh, the daughter of a childhood friend of his uh, that he went pursuing, and he so th- at, at least in that one he does have a rationale for it. But yeah, he's. Yeah, but he didn't like know her well. Like it's just like a casual acquaintance, a child of a friend, right, sort of right. thing. Right. And the, but he just saw what had happened to that family and how they were suffering without her. And he said, "Yeah, okay, I'm going to go get her back." So he does have that superhero mentality of, "Yeah, I'm just going to go help these people who I barely know or know a little bit." He, and he and and several times he goes for vengeance against uh, a ba- a guy who's bad, um, like a guy who either a thief or a pirate or someone, and he goes, "Well." I think God wants you to die, so it's up to me to kill you. Basically, uh, that happens in the story with the necromancer. With the uh, some of them are very short. There's one story about a necromancer who gets uh, betrayed by his friend, and he was a necromancer, so uh, necromancer, I should say. Um, he so you know Solomon Cain's not too broken up about it, but he still thinks that 
his pal, uh, you know, was a was a weasel for selling him out, and the necromancer necromancer sends a uh, disembod his disembodied hand out to to murder him, which is kind of cool. Uh, there's one story that's just a fragment. Did you read the fragments, like uh, Castle of the Devil? Yeah. Um, yeah. Th there's one where he meets a uh, uh, a uh, 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 sorry, not, that, that's not the fragment. That's the one where he meets the murderous innkeeper, which seems to be kind of a Sweeney Todd uh, inspired thing. But then he also turns out that the guy he went to the inn with is a murdering rogue as well, a bandit. Uh, and they they basically the the band the the innkeeper kills the bandit, and then the bandit let loose a sorcerer who whose bones had been shackled in the basement and he comes out and kills the innkeeper so it's like <laughs> there's it that's got a very strong yeah like he's an instrument of divine justice uh that's that's kind of a recurring thing what one tiny moment i did like in the movie as you say the movie's terrible it's just him moping for two hours and barely doing it, anything it's really dour like it's just not yeah fun. It's, it's like i could i could live with dumb fun but it's just mm -hmm. It's almost depressing to watch. I don't there, know. It's there's just... one, I mean, which, I mean, it, he's a dour character. It kind of makes sense. Yeah, but like the movie is, yeah. I mean, it's just. Yeah. No, I 100% I I agree. I, uh, the, the fragment Castle of the Devil, uh, there was a, Dark Horse was, do, of course, they've been doing uh, their Conan series for a while now. It's been really good. Uh, they did do a Solomon Kane miniseries, and they it, it actually adapted Castle of the Devil. Uh, as I understand it, um, there's a writer uh, named. Ramsey Campbell uh, is a guy who um, apparently he did flesh out some of his fragments into full stories, and I think that's what they use as the basis for this comic. But uh, it, it has... Uh, I think I've read some of his stories. I think he did some Lovecraft... Uh, I might be confusing the name, but uh, I think he did some Lovecraft mythos stories that I read. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I think he was... And then August Derleth, who was known for uh, kind of... Um, for bringing uh, Lovecraft to people's attentions in the 60s, uh, he apparently commissioned some uh, additional Solomon Kane stories as well. So there's a few non-Robert E. Howard Solomon Kane stories out there. Uh, apparently, but anyway, in Castle of the Devil, he uh, he has uh, Solomon Kane teaming up with a guy named John Silent, another Englishman, who seems to be a decent enough guy. I mean, unless there was some twist planned where he was a bad guy. Uh, he was, like, for what, for... Other than Nalonga, that's the only companion you really see uh, uh, Solomon Kane getting. And it's it's useful because it's like, here's a guy who isn't super dour and grumpy all the time, basically. Um, it's a good contrast in the characters. One tiny moment I did like in the movie, the only bit that really works, is where Solomon Kane is, you know, he's been trying to put aside violence and find peace, and the people he, he the family he's been hanging out with all get murdered, and he basically looks up to God and he says, is this all I am to you? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Oh, very well. So then he takes out the sword and, and you know, goes to town on them and becomes a, a spirit of vengeance. And like, that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a good moment, but that's, that's the only really memorable moment in the, in the movie, but it, it does get to the character in some ways, although I don't think he would see himself. It, it, it's a little more nuanced than, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in despair because I'm doomed to always be the, the, the sword of vengeance. I think he's, uh, I think he's, uh, you know, happy to do God's will, but he has doubts and he's he's racked by inner turmoil sometimes. Yeah, it also uh, says he has vanity in in his um, um, skill as a as a warrior, right? Um, and that uh, he can be um, uh, like he's going to to kill a guy in cold blood, and the guy sort of 
um, calls him a chicken. Right. Basically, does the Back to the Future two thing. You know? Yeah. And yeah, the the pirate. He, he's... So he, he allows him to uh, to fight to give him he gives him a weapon so they can do a proper. Job. Yeah, and the, he baits him into a knife fight by saying, you know, yeah, that yeah. he's a coward, and and well, he says he says that vanity, but I think you can also say that like he, Solomon Kane would see that as like. Well, it's he's he he does have a point. It's not super honorable. I was just going to shoot him down, and you know. It, yeah, but it, it also it it does go into his thought process, and like he, this man would go to his grave thinking he's a coward, and yeah, no matter how much he proves, no matter how many uh, other people uh, don't think he's a coward, this one guy will. Right. That you know. Yeah, it's and that is always such a thing in Paul Pierros. It's like they have to do the most honorable thing. They're never, even though it makes perfect sense to just shoot this guy and he's a perfectly vile, he's a perfectly vile monster. But you know he can't just shoot him in the back. He's got to, he's got to best him in a fair fight, or even not a fair fight, but he's still got to best him with the odds stacked against that's him. Even, you know. Yeah, that's even taken to a planetary scale in uh, Bar the Barsoom books where. Uh, it's a Martian custom that if the enemy is, um, you can only fight them with what arms they have. So if you have a gun and and, a, and they have a sword, you throw away your gun and fight them with the sword. Right. Yeah. That, that, um, which is ridiculous. Yeah. That. Uh, well. But anyway. and yet uh, it works. You know that is definitely a yeah. that is definitely a trope. Oh where yeah. You're like, no, no. I, it's I. Yeah. It makes you like the hero. You know when they don't. They don't yeah. just when they they're like yeah fair fight and then the bad guy will of course cheat and the hero will win anyway you know yeah. that kind of thing it's always it's always yeah. effective but um, uh, yeah there's also the uh, the from one of the fragments Hawk uh, Jeremy Hawk who uh, wants to uh, uh, who's used to control a lost African civilization so many lost African civilizations in these books yeah. um, um, and that that's sort of another old acquaintance but he seems more villainous. The story doesn't finish, but you get the the idea that um, Solomon would have turned on him eventually. Yeah, yeah, they 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 yeah. It's it's men tend to prove themselves not very worthy, and when when you know Solomon Cain's around, <laughs> they tend to they tend to disappoint yeah. him all the time, which is. Oh, uh, we haven't talked about the uh, the staff of Solomon, which is Solomon Cain's magical weapon. Solomon's um, cane, you might which say. Which he's uncomfortable. Yeah, um, he's uncomfortable wielding it because uh, Nalonga gave it to him, and he thinks it's black magic. But like, it works. Yep. So kills vampires. Um, yep. It uh, it certainly does. There there is a uh, city of African vampires in this. Um, but yeah, um, it, it's it's effective against the supernatural, and he can also uh, summon Nalonga in his sleep and whatnot. Um, and it's revealed that it was actually. Literally used by the by the uh, biblical Solomon, it's used by Moses, and it apparently predates human civilization. Right. Yeah. And again, it's it tied into his sort of antediluvian mythos of Atlantis and Mu yeah. and all that stuff that exists. Right. I, I did um, like um, one story where um, uh, the villains were a race of bat people, who, as I said, were uh, uh, linked to the um, harpies of Greek myth. Um, and he can't summon Nalonga uh, at that point because he can only summon him for supernatural threats. And these are just uh, <laughs> another race of humans that evolved. Right, they're pseudoscientific. Yeah, that's kind of fun. That is kind yeah. of funny. 
like I, I do like that there's different kinds of threats in these stories. Like sometimes there's no supernatural stuff happening. Sometimes it's like supernatural, but not tech, you know, like uh, cryptids or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And other times it's straight up, you know, vampires or um, a lost civilization based on the, or based on a old biblical city, that sort of yeah. thing. Um, it is interesting the variety that yeah. that happens. Yeah, he lends. And there's also like poems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he lends himself to just he could just have a swashbuckling pirate types. So he could fight pirates. Like there's no yeah. need. You don't actually. Apparently, um, uh, the Blue Flame of Vengeance, which is the story we were talking about, where he uh, baits the the guy baits him into having a knife fight with him. Um, he um, apparently that was rewritten later on. Again, this is by August Derleth, I believe, uh, to have supernatural elements. <laughs> Um, for reasons I'm not clear on, except I guess that was just the style that Derleth was going for, uh, because it's the story that doesn't have any, other than the fragments, it's the only story that doesn't have any uh, supernatural elements directly, uh, but it works just fine as it is, you know? So um, there you go. Yeah, uh, and Solomon Kane is, of course, um, appears in the Walt Newton universe as a um, um, as an ancestor of uh, Doc Savage, Um He's apparently appeared in the uh, uh, Shadow Men, uh, Tales of the Shadow Men series from Black Coat Press, which is mostly about um, uh, French pulp characters. But it has um, apparently a story where he uh, is one of the adventurers going to Selene, the Vampire City, which mm. we discussed uh, way back. Yeah, when. Vampire City episode. Yeah. Yep. It's he's 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 anyway, a very I, I, he's he's a, he's definitely cast a long shadow over uh, the pulp universe. So if you're a pulp nerd, you you definitely know uh, Solomon Kane. He's probably, in fact, he's probably Howard's uh, second most famous character. I'd, I'd put him even ahead of Cull uh, in terms of fame. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's he's quite well known. Well, the sea calls to us, and we must go forth once again. Uh, we are your doughty and solemn hosts, Adam Prosser and Philip Rice. He's doughty, I'm solemn. Uh, once again, we have to thank he who sits on high and orchestrates our affairs, Alec Ross, our producer and web hoster, and the heavenly chorus of Jack Furyk's theme song. Uh, also a reminder that we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for our struggle to spread the light of truth across the world. If you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2Xs, or NeverSleepsNetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. You can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or SpearHalfHawk underscore for Philip. Uh, and also another reminder that I do have another podcast at the moment, which is the uh, Mirror Universe Star Trek podcast at mirroruniverse.podbeam.com with my friend uh, uh, Douglas McDonald Norman. Check that out if you want to hear some thoughts about Star Trek. So until next time, toil ye good men in the light of wisdom. <laughs>